You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We have been going through the book of Luke together, and right now we're slated to finish it somewhere around the end of August, which we started last August. And we are now brought to Luke chapter 16. A special thanks also go to Pastor Ben and Matt, our church planning resident, soon to be pastor, uh, going through the ordination process, and David Tipton for preaching in my absence. Uh, Last week was one of the more well-known passages in the book of Luke, the stories of the prodigal son. Well, the like Ben, I'm out of words today. The context continues. It's actually, it's actually the same context. Jesus surrounded by disciples and Pharisees here at the beginning of Luke chapter 16. And we're going to read Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 15 this morning. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the gospel of Christ. At work, it might come in the form of a facepalm. With a teenager, it might come in the form of an eye roll. And with a family member, it might come in the form of a strategic exit from the room. What is it? Those topics that nobody ever wants to talk about and bring up. And in church world, that topic is money. Why? Well, there is a perception amongst many churches and amongst many churchgoers that the church is always talking about money and the church does a really good job at guilting people 
about their usage of money. And every time I go to the church, the church is asking me for money. That's one thing. And so people give their eye rolls or they make their strategic exits. There's another response that people often give to churches because sometimes churches don't take the hard teachings of Jesus very seriously. Throughout Luke, we've had very hard teachings on money, especially back in Luke chapter 12. And it's easy to spiritualize away the hard edges of what Jesus is saying, especially about giving things away. And so we just kind of brush it off and pretend it's not really there. The church has to talk about money because Jesus talks about money. And when Jesus talks about money here, we might give more of a quizzical look. What is Jesus talking about? In fact, this is probably one of Jesus' most challenging parables because what he commends is wicked behavior. What on earth is happening? Let's look at that this morning by talking about the uses of money, temptations of money, the limitations of money, and shrewdness with money. The uses of money, the temptations of money, the limitations of money, and shrewdness with money. So first, the uses of money. When you get down to it, there's really only a handful of things you can do with money. The first is to spend it. You may spend it. And this is what the manager does with the master's money as he's accused of doing by others in verse 1. He's been wasting it or squandering it, which is the same word used of the younger prodigal son in Luke 15. He's wasting or squandering it. Same word in the original language. You can spend excessively, but spending is spending all the same. That's one of the uses of money. Another use of money is that you can save it. Certainly the master's accusation in verse 2 implies that he'd rather have more of his possessions than less. And when you look down in verses 6 and 7 about the kinds of money that was owed back to the master, in first century terms that would have been enormous sums of wealth. There's no way the master could have spent all that money. So presumably he just wanted to save more. Whether he was saving for a rainy day or for retirement or for his kids' inheritance, doesn't tell us, but he was saving So you can spend money, you can save it, and the last thing you can do with money is you can give it away. In a non-charitable sense, this is exactly what the manager does with the master's money in verses 6 and 7 when he goes and settles debts. It's a form of giving money away. He settles debts for less than what is owed so that the master can get be paid quickly and the manager can have good relationships once he's fired. More on that in a minute. Now, there's, of course, charitable ways to give money away. This is what Jesus talks about in Luke 12 and plenty of other places as well. But you can give money away. Whether it's a non-charitable business sense or it's a charitable sense, you can give money away. There are ultimately only three things you can do with money. You can spend it, you can save it, and you can give it away. What I want you to see is that none of these things on the surface is really wrong. In fact, someone who's wise with money probably has a good balance of all three in their life. Spending on things they need, saving, especially for emergencies and long-term needs, because human beings are living longer now more than ever, and giving it away, especially since that's such a clear injunction in Jesus' teaching. This is the gist behind verses 10 through 12 when he says, if you're faithful with a little, are you spending responsibly with the little you might have? Are you spending responsibly with the much you might have? Are you saving responsibly with the little you or much you might have? Are you giving away with the little or much you might have? No matter how much you have, no matter 
how much you get paid, small or big? Are you being faithful with a little so that the Lord will trust you with much? There's three things you can do with money. None of them on the surface are inherently wrong. And that's why Jesus implores us to look a little deeper than the surface. To look deeper into heart motivations. This gets to our next point, temptations of money. The temptations of money. On the surface, you can do all different kinds of things with money, but what are the temptations with money? The master fires the manager in verse 2, and the implied silence of the manager after verses 2 is over is implied that really the manager was in the wrong. He has actually been squandering the money. He doesn't defend himself in any way, shape, or form. So he is somebody who squanders wealth. He's somebody who lives profligately. And on the other hand, he's contrasted with some characters at the end of our passage. you got to remember that the, the situation, the scenario from the parable of the prodigal sons, there's really two sons that are wayward, right? The younger son who's squandering the wealth, and then there's the older son, the elder son, who really just wants to hoard the father's wealth. The setting hasn't changed from Luke 15 to Luke 16. And so the Pharisees, Jesus has been telling this story to his disciples, verse 1 tells us, but the Pharisees are still around. They're hearing what Jesus is teaching about. And Luke tells us that they were lovers of money. And they heard all these things and ridiculed Jesus. The Pharisees did not live in wild, ostentatious wealth. But they loved money still. They would, they would put on the people all different kinds of religious taxes so they could have money for themselves, but they would hoard it like a miser. They wouldn't actually spend it. They didn't squander money. They just loved it. They wanted to hoard it. And this is when Jesus says, they're really just trying to justify themselves because in their religious sense, they, they looked at their wealth, they looked at how they were living in better circumstances and was like, God must love us more because we're more religious and he's giving us more. And Jesus says, no, you're just trying to justify yourself. You're trying to make yourself right in God's sight and that's not how it works. This is what Jesus means in verse 13 when he says, you can really only serve God or money so either God is your master or money is your master here because it's so easy to be mastered by money. You can be mastered because you just you desire so much more. You desire more, 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 and you want to squander wealth like the manager or the younger brother in the prodigal son story. And you're mastered by wealth because you just can't ever say no to yourself. Or you can also be mastered by money by wanting to hoard it and never spend it like the Pharisees like the elder brother in the prodigal son story. Money makes an excellent servant in relationships, but it makes a terrible master. There's ultimately two ways to be tempted by money, and there's ultimately two ways to be mastered by it. You can squander it, or you can hoard it, cherish it, hold it secure like a miser. This is the theme of one of Charles Dickens' novels, Our Mutual Friend. A wealthy benefactor has died, and because he hated his children, because it's Dickens, lots of family drama in Dickens, he hated his kids, he decided to give all of his wealth to his servants, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin. Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, formerly of the lower classes, now thrust into the upper crusts of 19th century England. They don't know what to do with the wealth, but they feel like they should do some nice things with it. So they find two persons that they can share the wealth with. They find a young woman, Bella Wilfer, 
who they want to bring in. And she can befriend Mrs. Boffin and help befriend her in the upper crust of society because she doesn't really know what to do or say in all these expensive dinners. And so Bella Wilfer comes along and befriends Mrs. Boffin. And Bella Wilfer falls in love with nice dresses and exceptional bonnets. And she really just wants, she's a gold digger. She just wants to marry a really, really wealthy guy because of all the things that money can buy. The other person they bring on is a gentleman by the name of Silas Wegg, who's a beggar. He's just on the side of the street. Mr. Boffin sees him and says, hey, can you read? And realizes the man actually has a formal education, even though he's poor. And he says, will you come to read to me at night? Because Mr. Boffin can't read. And Mr. Boffin eventually entrusts him to watch over the second house. But Wegg becomes greedy. Wegg's like, how, how come Mr. Boffin has all this wealth when he was of the lower classes just like me? He doesn't deserve that wealth. I deserve that wealth, even though he has no plan to spend it. And eventually he embarks on an elaborate scheme to try to find later wills of the deceased rich person to invalidate Mr. Boffin's wealth so he could have it all to himself. So you can either be like Bella Wilfer or the younger brother in the prodigal son story or the manager here and want to squander wealth, or you can be tempted to hoard it like Silas Wegg or the elder brother or the Pharisees here. Money temptations can make you profligate, or they can make you a hoarder. They can make you like the proverbial pro athlete who's always squandering his wealth, or they can make you like Ebenezer Scrooge who never spends it on anyone. But none of us are a pro athlete. None of us are Ebenezer Scrooge. So how can we look within ourselves and look at our inner heart motivations to really test whether we have succumbed to these temptations when it comes to money. I think it's to ask this question of yourself, even just right now. Do you think more about what you could do with money for others, which of course could include your family and friends, or do you think more about what you could do with it yourself? Do you think more about what you could do with your desires, or do you think, if I had more, this is what I would do to give it away? As a Christian, if you aren't looking for, scheming for, and finding ways to give of your time, your money, your possessions, you probably aren't following Jesus as much as you think you are. Those are the temptations of money. Now, thirdly, what are the limitations of money? What are the limitations of money? Why, why, what are the limitations which would help us overcome the temptations of money. Jesus gets at that when he says that money is essentially a means and not an end. Money won't love you back and you can't take money with you to eternity. Jesus makes this point in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when it fails, does that mean everybody's going to go bankrupt in this life? No. In fact, many of us will die with something to give to someone else. But Jesus says when it fails, not if it fails. What is he talking about? He's talking about eternity. At some point, we will all die, and you cannot take money with you to eternity. And it will fail you. All wealth will fail you. That's a limitation of money. Do we live in light of that? A different limitation Jesus sets out in verse 12. Uh, notice how quickly he assumes that wealth isn't ours to begin with when he says, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, 
what? See how he just slips that assumption in there? He assumes that all wealth belongs to someone else. Who? God. And notice what else Jesus does here. Whether you are penniless or you are a billionaire, all wealth to God is a small amount. If you've been faithful with little. In the eyes of eternity, no matter how wealthy you are, you could be Elon Musk and you are poor to God. And it belongs to him in the first place. So ultimately, there are two limitations with money. One is that it will fail, and the second is that it doesn't belong to us anyway. Do we really believe this? When I was preparing the sermon several weeks ago, I had to admit, man, I want to believe this, but I really do not live this way. Regarding my uses of money in the Strunk family, we spend less than we make. We save for retirement and for rainy days. Uh, we give plenty of our income away. In terms of temptations and how we manage the uses of money, we do a pretty decent job, but I never, almost never find myself asking God or praying to God, how should I be spending this money that you have given me? Because it belongs to you anyway. Almost never. I just don't consider it because I already have a good plan and scheme already in place. I'm a planner. I'm a schemer. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm responsible with money, but I just don't stop and ask God, hey, this belongs to you. What would you like? I just don't bring God to the equation at all. Now, if I did, if I did bring God to the equation and I was more prayerful in my use of money, I don't think my outward behavior would change much at all. I think I'd still be giving away to things that uh, matter to me. I think I'd still be saving for certain causes. I think I'd still be spending on, on needs and sometimes wants. I don't think much in my outward behavior would change, but I think I'd have more joy. I'd have more joy in being partnered with God and what he might do. I think I'd have more gratitude for what God has given me. It's not always about a change in behavior. Sometimes it's just about you knowing the depths of God's love and provision for you. I think meditating on these limitations would lead to the virtue ultimately that Jesus recommends here. It's our final point this morning, and it's really the heart of the passage, shrewdness with wealth. I think meditating on these limitations would lead us to be more shrewd. Let's get into this. In verse 2, the manager is fired, and presumably he's given some time to settle his affairs. So in verses 3 through 4, Jesus provides an inner monologue of the manager to give us a sense of his inner thinking here. And he talks to himself, and he's revealing his inner motivation that he really wants to avoid manual labor. He doesn't want to dig. And he doesn't think he could beg because it would bring so much social dishonor. So in the inner workings of his heart, the manager desires to both avoid hard labor and to avoid laziness. And somehow what the manager avoids is viewing a job as a means to an end, the end of money. Rather, the manager views money as a means to social connection, hospitality, and stability. In verse 4, for instance, his largest inner motivation is to be received into other people's houses as a social equal still once he's been fired from the manager's house. The manager is not thinking about money as a means to an end. He's thinking about it as a way to stay connected with others. So in verse 5, Jesus tells us one by one, he begins to try to settle the master's debts. So we're to read into this imaginary story, this parable, one by one, that this happens lots of times. 
not just the two times listed in verses 6 and 7, the manager going to settle the master's debts. And so he does so, and he reduces the debts significantly, which were essentially small fortunes. And then in verse 8, Jesus explicitly calls the manager's behavior dishonest, reducing the overall yield of the master's profits after he's been fired. And yet Jesus and the manager, or excuse me, Jesus and the master commend the manager for shrewdness. That's what verse 8 says, shrewdness. The, manager, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is shrewdness here? Does it just mean driving a hard bargain or getting a good deal or being wise in commercial transactions? Not necessarily. Those are and can be good qualities to have. What Jesus is really saying is shrewdness is effective and godly when it deals in relationship to other people. It's not really about the deal you get. It's not shrewdness for shrewdness sake. It's shrewdness to be able to connect with others. What does Jesus say in verse 9? And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth. What Jesus means is just the money at large in society. And you can, what do you do with that money? You use it to make friends. Seems rather a crude formulation, doesn't it? almost like a sense of bribery, but that's really not what's going on at all. Jesus is talking about reciprocity, hospitality, generosity. When you have someone over, especially in the South, when you have someone over to your house for dinner, they want to return the favor. And Jesus is saying, look, the sons of this world, they're just more practical. They know when when you give something away, you can ask for something in return eventually. That's just a practical way to live. It's a shrewd way to stay connected to each other. Trust is the social glue here. Like in the old time South, a handshake was just as good as a deal. You didn't need a written contract. Shrewdness is relational from beginning to end. It means that you know the limitations of money because you want to avoid spending money on yourself. You want to avoid... Uh, hoarding it for yourself, really what you want to do is using it for connection with others, for standing in the community, so to speak. You don't love money, rather you love people with money. Let Let me demonstrate what shrewdness for our church might look like on a communal level. Can a community of God's people be shrewd for relational sake? I think so. Here's how I think about it in balance. Since the beginning of the life of this church, because of your generosity, this church has run in the black, run a profit every year of the life of our church. And we are so blessed because of you. And because of that, from the very beginning, we've always budgeted to give money away. Somewhere between 13 to 18% of our annual budget has always gone to partner ministries in this community and around the world. And if you tally it up, over the life of the church, it's almost a quarter of a million dollars. We could have been using that money to hoard for ourselves, to get a building someday, but rather we decided for the sake of others, we would be shrewd. From the very beginning of the life of the church, we wouldn't start giving money away when we could finally afford it. We would give money away from the very beginning for the sake of others. And still, I think one of the things that several people have said to me already today, which I said, hey, I'm actually going to talk about this today. And still, I think a part of shrewdness would be eventually 
Church of the Redeemer having its own facility that we would call our own, however modest or simple that might be. Why? Because with a building, there's a, sen- there's a statement of permanence. With a building, uh, there's a statement of longevity. I'm going to retire someday, or I'm going to be dead someday, and I want Church of the Redeemer to still be around. And you need s- senses of permanence to make the blessing of others permanent. Shrewdness. It's a shrewd calculation. Shrewd to say, we're going to give money away, but also shrewd to say, we are going to have a building, but not a building to bless ourselves, a building so that we are always blessing others. That's what shrewdness is, to say, this has got to be a place that is for others, a way we love people with our wealth. What would that look like on an individual level for you? Neither being miserly nor spending without a plan, what would shrewdness for others in every aspect of your life look like? What does that calculation look like in your family's life? How can you introduce more shrewdness? Would that mean you spend more, save more? So that you could give more away. Now, given that the manager shrewdly secures future relational provisions for himself in verses 6 and 7, he is relying on an ancient system of reciprocity. It was actually a part of Roman culture, and it was a part of Jewish culture as well. Uh, a tit for tat, I do this for you, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And, and because I've done a favor for you, I can expect a favor in return. And so the manager is doing these favors so that one day he can call on those favors, right? But this still gripes at us. Why? It seems so unjust. He's stealing from the master. He's squandering the master's wealth still. He started off squandering the master's wealth in verse 1, and now he's still squandering the master's wealth by his development of shrewdness. Why is Jesus commending this behavior? We must remember that in Luke 9, Jesus began heading for Jerusalem, which means in his mind, he knew he was heading for the cross. And Luke 13 reminds us of it again. Don't forget, Luke 13 tells us, Jesus is still heading towards Jerusalem because he's been kind of walking around for a while, not heading directly towards Jerusalem, which means in the mind of Christ, he's been heading for his cross the entire time. Every teaching, every parable he gives is in light of the cross. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm the master. When the manager has to rely on the mercy of the master in his squandering of his wealth, and then even in the development of a virtue, developing the shrewdness of his wealth, he has to rely on the mercy of the master, and Jesus is saying, I'm like that. I am the one whom you can presume upon, because I'm heading towards Jerusalem to my cross. And all of us have cosmic and relational and existential debts when it comes to God the Father. And Jesus says, I'm going to pay for those debts. You can rely upon my mercy. So when we are tempted to squander our wealth, and when we are tempted to hoard our wealth, Jesus says, I've died for it. When we don't understand the limitations of our wealth, and we just don't ever really think about anything that we have being God's already, Jesus says, I'm here to remind you that it already belongs to me. And my cross is your reminder. My cross is my, your reminder that you belong to me, not just your wealth. If we would like to be shrewd like the manager here, then we too should risk everything on the master's mercy. 
in paying the debt for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we are in a wealthy culture and we don't always heed Jesus' teaching on this. We pray you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you'd have to say to us, each on individual levels, however it is your spirit was supposed to speak. And Lord, however it was that I got in the way, would you erase the memories of those and let only your spirit's word speak to everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.